We are continuing our study through the book of Acts. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15? Acts chapter 15, we'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Now, if, if I talk normal, can everyone hear me in the back or do I have to yell? If I, I'm talking normal right now, raise your hand if you can hear me in the back. Okay, good. And so men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren... Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the multitude kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after these things I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore it is my judgment that we should not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles." But that we just write to them that they should abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. So the issue that Paul and Barnabas 
are dealing with in the church in Antioch is the problem of false teachers. There were Jews who had come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus as the Christ. But they were troubling the believers there in Antioch by teaching them that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Believing in Jesus Christ is not enough. What Christ did for you on the cross is not enough if you're not circumcised. You could miss out on heaven, even though you believe in Jesus, you could miss out on heaven because you're not circumcised. But we see in verse 5 that that included all the law of Moses. Not just the requirement of the law regarding circumcision, but all the requirements of the law written by Moses. And this was a very serious problem. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, for as such you shall receive a stricter judgment. Now with regard to believers who are not rightly dividing the word of truth, so they're misrepresenting the mind of God to the people, they're misrepresenting the heart and nature of God to the people, they're misrepresenting the will of God for the people, but they're believers. Judgment is in the form of discipline. It would not be the same as the unbelieving and the ungodly. Their judgment is at the great white throne when they're condemned to hell. But when believers are judged, they are disciplined by the Lord, that they may not be condemned with the world. So those who are turning down the wrong path, lest they continue on a path that leads to destruction, whom God loves, he disciplines. He calls that judgment. That's what the judgment of God is in the life of believers. It's not condemnation to hell. It is simply discipline. And it's a serious thing when there's false teaching in the mind and heart of God and the will of God for the people is being misrepresented. Moses was severely disciplined by God. He misrepresented God to the people. They had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land, to a rich, full, abundant life in the land of Canaan. But on the way, they had to go through the wilderness, and they reached a place where there was no water. And they realized... We're going to die out here. And they were angry with Moses, rebelling against Moses. Were there no graves in Egypt? He had to bring us out here to die? But it was the purpose of God to bring them there. He's wanting to reveal himself to his people as their great problem solver. It was God's will that they were backed up between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And there was, there was no solution. Man, talk about a problem. And God had a solution for that problem, didn't he? Now he's got a solution for their problem, being in the desert without water. If I never had my problems, I'd never know my God could solve them. He has a purpose for bringing us into a problem situation that just seems impossible. So he wasn't angry with his people. This was according to his purpose. So he instructed Moses, speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, water will gush forth. And some underground spring will come to the surface and become a stream of water running through the camp and everyone will have plenty of water. But because the people were so angry with Moses, Moses was angry with the people. 
And in a fit of anger, he struck the rock twice with his rod instead of speaking to the rock as God told him to. He misrepresented God to the people because God wasn't angry with the people. And water came forth and they were provided for, but Moses was severely disciplined. God said, Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land with the rest of the people. And even though Moses pleaded with God, God would not relent. You did not treat me as holy before the people. You broke faith with me in the midst of the people. And that is what false teaching is. That is what false doctrine does. It's a serious thing. It misrepresents God before the people. Paul and Barnabas were very upset. That's why there was dissension. That's why there was a heated debate going on. Paul and Barnabas had been sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the new believers were rejoicing. Their hearts were full of the joy of the Lord when they heard the good news. Salvation is by grace, not by the law. Salvation is through faith in Christ, not by the works of obedience. It's so wonderful. We're guilty. We've broken God's laws and we still get to go to heaven because of what Jesus did. And they were full of the joy of the Lord. And here comes these false teachers saying, no, 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 it's not that simple. Yes, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you better be circumcised and you better obey all the other laws of Moses too taking the joy of the Lord away from these new believers, bringing them back under a spirit of fear. They know they've broken God's laws. Now they're fearful again. Now they have a heart full of the expectation of facing God in a day of judgment and wrath and having been punished for disobeying his laws. And that means Christ died needlessly. That's why Paul wrote to the Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. That's what this teaching is doing. It's saying that the suffering and death of Jesus was a waste of time because even if you believe in him, man, you better keep the law. If you fall short of God's standard of righteousness according to the law, you're going to be judged and condemned and punished. You're not going to be able to make it to heaven. And so, it was a horrible, horrible teaching. And they were arguing and debating this issue. Finally, Paul and Barnabas said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Jerusalem where the rest of the apostles are, and we're going to have a meeting, we're going to have a council, we're going to discuss this issue with the apostles and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Because these false teachers are bringing a heaviness upon your heart and you're no longer rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing in your salvation. And when they come to Jerusalem and they have this meeting to discuss this issue, Peter doesn't stand up and begin to speak until, notice verse 7, after there had already been much debate. So they're debating the issue again in Jerusalem. That means those teachers are there also. No, no, no. You better be obedient to the laws of God in addition to faith in Christ or you can't go to heaven. And after much debate, finally, Peter stands up. He reminds them of how God poured out his spirit on the Gentiles 
referring to the house of Cornelius, just like he poured out his spirit on the disciples on the day of Pentecost, he reminds them, God's love and salvation is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he's no respecter of persons. He makes no distinction. He saves them by faith, just the way he saves us by faith. So here's his question. Here's the question he presents to this group of people. Why? Why would you put God to the test by placing on the necks of the disciples a heavy yoke that neither our fathers nor we ourselves have been able to bear. The question is two-part. Why would you put God to the test? Another word for test is tempt. Like when Satan tempted the Lord in the wilderness and Jesus was put to the test as if Satan was actually going to get Jesus to do something wrong, do something unscriptural, putting God to the test. How ridiculous. It's like when the Pharisees put our Lord to the test with the question about whether or not it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, as if they were actually going to get God the Son to say something that was wrong and unscriptural. How foolish to attempt to put God to the test, because that is what you're doing with this teaching. You're putting God to the test by placing on the necks of the disciples a heavy yoke, a heavy burden that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. No one throughout the history of Israel had ever been able to live righteously before God according to the law. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standard of righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not God. There isn't anybody who hasn't broken the laws of God. We all fall short. We're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of grace. So why would you rob these disciples of the joy of their salvation by putting that heavy burden, that heavy yoke upon them? Instead of the joy of their salvation, now they're fearful again. Instead of being filled with the joy of the Lord, they're back in that place of hopelessness. A relationship with God based on the law leaves us without hope. We know we've broken God's laws. I have no hope of heaven. I have to get judged and punished for my sins. Why would you do that to these believers and rob them of the joy of their salvation. So we're going to try to answer that question this morning. Why? Why would they do that? Why would people do that to you? And, and this passage of Scripture is so important because if you understand this passage of Scripture, you will never, ever let anybody do this to you. You'll never let anybody put a heavy yoke of the law upon you and rob you of the joy of your salvation. But why would anyone want to do that, I'm going to suggest three reasons why people might do that to you today. Number one, there might be someone who is very sincere and genuinely cares about you and your spiritual welfare and your walk with the Lord. And they can say that you're stumbling in your walk and they can see that you're struggling with some sin issue in your life. They want to help you, but they are afraid to assure you that the grace of God is sufficient for you. They're afraid to assure you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and this 
thing you're struggling with does not mean that you have to question your salvation. What kind of, what makes you think you're a Christian? Christians don't act like that and come to you with an attitude of judgment and condemnation, which is based on the law. They're concerned about your walk. They want to get you back on the pathway of truth and righteousness. But they're afraid if they assure you that God's grace is sufficient sufficient for you while you're working on this, they're afraid that you're going to use grace as a license to sin. If they assure you God's grace is sufficient, they're afraid you're going to go hog wild. And you're just going to say, well, that is just so wonderful because now I can sit all I want to and I still get to go to heaven because God's grace is sufficient, sufficient for me. And uh, just how much sin can I do and still go to heaven and have that kind of a cavalier attitude toward sin? Why don't we have to be afraid to assure people that the grace of God is sufficient for them while they're dealing with the issues of the flesh? Because God will make sure that they continue on the right path. Before their own master, they stand and fall. And that's not you, that's not me, that's the Lord. And whom he loves, he disciplines. So he says, don't worry. If I need to discipline my son or my daughter, I will. And I will bring my son or my daughter back to the point where they want to walk in my ways. I know how to bring them to repentance. Don't think you have to put the fear of hell in their hearts and in their minds to get them back on the right path. You leave that to me. Whom the Lord loves... He disciplines, and I will bring them to the point where they will not want that sin anymore. They will choose to walk in my ways because they want to, out of love. Do you realize that love does far more than what the law requires? I remember when uh, my dad would make me wash the car once in a while. I have to wash my dad's car as part of my chores, and I did it, of course, but I admit there was a little bit of resentment in my heart washing my dad's car. So I did it very, very quickly. And I didn't put my whole heart into it. I didn't care I wasn't doing a good job. I don't care if I miss a few spots. But then, when I started dating Janice, and my father let me borrow the car to go on a date with her, I was out there washing the car for a very different reason. And I was whistling, and I was singing, and I was happy. And man, that car never looked so good. Man, did I do a good job. I even waxed it after I washed it. You couldn't find a single piece of lint anywhere in the interior. What was the difference between doing it with resentment and doing a half-hearted job and doing it with joy and doing a great job. The difference was doing it out of love. And God wants to raise us to a higher level. That's why he wants to keep us under grace while we're struggling with sin issues in our lives. So what we do for him, we do because we choose to. What we do for him, we do out of love for him. We're being obedient to the Lord. Not with resentment in our heart. Man, I wish I could enjoy the pleasure of sin, but I can't or I'll go to hell. Not out of fear, but out of love for the Lord. Serving the Lord in ministry, not with a little bit of resentment. Man, there's a thousand other things I'd rather be doing, but I gotta serve the Lord. 
Because if I don't, yeah, I'm going straight to hell. He raises us to a new level of obedience and service where there's joy in our hearts and we give it everything we have because love always does more than what the law requires. Number two, the second reason that people will try to put the heavy yoke of the law around your neck is because they're control freaks and they want to control your life and they want to control everything that you do. And so they're going to add to all the rules and regulations and restrictions in your life. They're going to tell you exactly which movies you can watch and which ones you can't. And they're going to tell you exactly which music you can listen to and which music you can't listen to. They're going to explain to you why all forms of dancing is evil and from the devil. They're going to explain to you exactly who you can spend time with and who you can't spend time with until you're so weighted down and burdened down by all the rules and laws and, and regulations. You end up rebelling against Christ and Christianity because you have the wrong idea of what it is. When Rehoboam became king in place of his father, Solomon, the people came to him and they pleaded with him to lighten the load Man, your father's yoke upon us was heavy, referring to the heavy workload and the heavy tax burden he was putting upon them. Lighten the load a little bit. Man, we'll love you and serve you all of our days. And so he said, I'll get back to you in a few days with an answer. And he went to the elders of Israel, the older men who'd been around a while, had a lot of wisdom. And he said, what should I tell the people? And they said, Tell them that you will lighten the load. Lighten the heavy workload. Lighten the burden of taxes. They'll love you. They'll serve you all their days. But then he went to the younger men in his administration to ask them their counsel. And they said, no, no, no. You got to come down hard on them. If, if you want them to obey you and serve you, you got to go and tell them my father's little, or excuse me, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. And I'm going to put a heavier yoke upon you. And if my father disciplined you with whips, I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. Well, you know what they did? They said, forget you. I'm not going to serve you. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel rebelled and went off and made Jeroboam their king. There was rebellion and division in Israel. Rehoboam only ended up ruling over two of the twelve tribes of Israel. And that's just what's going to happen in the church, in the body of Christ. If this holy movement, holiness movement continues, if this teaching of legalism continues bringing God's people into a legalistic relationship with God rather than a relationship based upon grace. Eventually, God's people are going to rebel and there's going to be division in the body of Christ. The third reason, there are those who would put the heavy yoke of the law around your neck and rob you of the joy of your salvation is because they're miserable and they want to make you miserable like them. You're happy. You know you're not perfect. You know you have issues with the flesh that God's working with you on to get victory on. 
But you're not doubting and questioning your salvation because of those things. Every day you're rejoicing and giving thanks to God that Jesus died for you. Your sins are paid for. Every day you're rejoicing in your salvation. And that bothers them. They can't stand that, see you so happy. And so they've got to put rules and laws. They've got to put those chains back on you. Make you enslaved again to the law. Back under the heaviness of the fear of judgment and punishment for sin. They can't stand the fact that you're free and you're rejoicing in your freedom from the demands of the law. It was for freedom Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And do not become subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's referring to the heavy yoke of the law. Paul's heart was grieving over these believers. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And so he explains in Galatians 6.1, when a brother is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Spirit of gentleness. You don't go to him with this legalistic attitude of condemnation, an attitude of disgust and contempt. How can you call yourself a Christian? What makes you think you're saved? Gentleness, knowing next time you could be the one struggling with some sin issue, hoping that someone will come alongside of you with tenderness and gentleness and understanding. Don't worry. God's grace is sufficient for you while you're working through this, but let me help you. Let me help you to get victory in this area of your life, and you're going to want to get victory because sin will take a bite out of you. Sin will do harm to you. Sin will do damage to your relationships. Let me help you with this but spirit of tenderness and gentleness and understanding. So why? Three reasons why they were doing this. Three reasons why people are going to try to do this to you. Why would you put God to the test? By putting on the necks of the disciples, he yoked neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. And when he's finished, James stands up. This is not James the Apostle. James the Apostle had already been put to death by Herod. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He stands up and he agrees with Peter. He reminds him, yes, God's salvation is for the Gentiles, just like the Jews. He's no respecter of persons. He has saved them by grace through faith, just the way he saves us by grace through faith. And then he shows them that the prophets even agree with that as he quotes Amos chapter 9. And so he says, we're not going to trouble the Gentiles any longer. You guys, you false teachers, you've troubled them enough, robbing them of the joy of their salvation. And we are not going to trouble them any longer. We're just going to give you a couple of words of advice. Not terms of salvation, just some words of wisdom for you to live by. Because Moses is still taught in the synagogues every week. And some of the, your Jewish brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus, they've grown up believing that eating food, meat that was sacrificed to idols is a sin. 
Now, you know that that's not a sin. The Apostle Paul assured you that that's not a sin. It's just meat. And Jesus said, what goes into the body doesn't defile the body. It's what comes out of the body that defiles the body. You know you have a right to do that and freedom to do that. Just don't flaunt that in the front of your Jewish brothers and sisters who still think it's wrong. Why would you want to do something to stumble or offend a brother or sister? The other food law that James makes reference to is eating meat that had been strangled so the blood was still in it. Again, that doesn't defile you. They know they have the right and the freedom to do that, but just walk in love. Some of your Jewish brothers and sisters still think it's wrong, so why would you want to stumble them or offend them if you don't have to? And the other issue that James brings up is the issue of fornication. Again, not terms of salvation. God is not going to say to you, yes, you believed in Jesus, but there was that one time you gave into your weakness and you committed adultery so you don't get to go to heaven. That's not the unforgivable sin. He's just talking to them about wisdom, how you can have a life that is blessed by God and have a life that is a powerful witness for Christ in the world. Wonder why would he pick out that particular sin to mention to them. It may be because that sin is unique. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And remember, when two people have sexual intercourse, they are joined together physically, and the two become one. And so Paul reminds the believers, Christ dwells in you. Do you really want to join Christ to a prostitute or join Christ to an adulterous relationship. And it's just words of wisdom for us because sexual sin will do damage to the soul. It heaps guilt upon the soul. Sexual sin can seriously damage our physical bodies with sexually transmitted diseases. And sexual sin will destroy our witness for Christ in the world because the unbeliever is going to stand there and say, I'm a much better man than that Christian over there who's chasing after every skirt that comes along. Why do I need Christ? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you learn how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the heathen who don't even know God. For you were called for the purpose of purity and sanctification. And so, just some words of wisdom and advice. You will do well if you follow that wisdom. Man, you're good. you walk in love, going out of your way not to stumble or offend people with your rights and freedoms that you have in Christ. You will do well if you avoid those types of sins that are so damaging and destructive to you personally and to relationships. But it, when it comes to being accepted by God into heaven, what Jesus Christ did on the cross is enough. We do not nullify the grace of God. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died needlessly. Bottom line, if you understand this passage of Scripture, you will never allow anyone to put the heavy yoke of the law around your neck. And you will never find yourself guilty 
of putting the heavy yoke of the law on the neck of another believer. Misrepresenting God's mind and his heart and his will is a serious issue. This is not a funny yoke. Don't let the yoke be on you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful, Lord. The believers in the early church had this dispute and this debate to settle this issue once and for all so that we could have the assurance, Lord Jesus, that what you did for us on the cross is enough. And when we are struggling with the flesh and we're struggling with some sin issue, we don't have to worry about our salvation. We still have the joy of our salvation. We still have that peace and comfort of knowing that your grace is sufficient for us. And so, Lord, just plant that glorious truth deep, deep within our hearts so that nobody will ever be able to put that yoke around our neck. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you didn't understand what the good news of the gospel is, you thought, if I decide to start going to church and to be a better person, maybe God will accept me into heaven. You're still without hope. God's standard of righteousness, you know what it is? It's perfection. That's not the good news. That doesn't cause anyone's heart to rejoice. Okay, now I'm going to try really hard, and if I try hard enough and I'm righteous enough, I might make it. The joy of the Lord that fills our heart today is because Jesus Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary what we could never do for ourselves. Our own righteousness is like filthy rags before God. He's given to us his righteousness through faith in Christ, and that's the righteousness that gets us to heaven. So, if you've come to understand the good news of the true gospel of Christ, and you're ready to repent of your sin, in other words, a new attitude of heart, from now on, God, I want to do things your way. And I know I won't always be able to perfectly but I know that when I fail, I will have your forgiveness. The precious blood of Jesus will continually cleanse me from all sin. So I'm ready to repent of my sin and receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If that's you here today, I'm going to lead you in a short prayer. If that's you that is watching and listening online, I'm going to lead you in a short prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for suffering and dying on the cross for me. I have sinned. I have broken your laws. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the penalty of my sin. I believe in you. I receive you now as my Lord does my Savior come into my heart? Wash me and cleanse me from all sin. I receive your forgiveness this morning. 
I receive the free gift of eternal life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, Jesus was knocking on the door of your heart this morning. Your heart was pounding because he's knocking on the door of your heart. And you opened the door and you invited him in. And what did he say? Invite me in, I will come in. You prayed that prayer. Christ dwells within you. Your sins are paid for, past, present, and future. And you know what? Right here, right now, you can start rejoicing and celebrating your salvation. From now on, if anybody asks you, do you think you're going to go to heaven? You say, I don't think I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. Well, how is it that you're so arrogant and conceited? You know you're going to heaven. Because it's not about what I've done, good or bad, and I've done some bad. It's about what Jesus did for me. Right here, right now. You start and you spend the rest of your life celebrating and rejoicing at what Christ did for you on the cross. And you don't let anyone ever steal that joy away from you. God bless you. We'll see you right back here in the parking lot Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Bless you.